Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. I mentioned this earlier that today is Pentecost Sunday. It's a day we remember the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the first disciples and upon the first church. Jesus had promised that he would send his spirit, and about 50 days after he rose from the dead, so 50 days after Easter, he, uh, the spirit came upon the first Christians. They were gathered in a room together, and he filled them with his presence. They were filled with a new kind of power, a power the Apostle Paul calls in Ephesians an incomparably great power that the spirit brought. And as we think about this last question God asks here on this last day of this series, the question itself, is there anything too difficult for God, indicates, points to the incomparable power of God at work in the everyday lives of his people. So I would recommend as we go through this to be thinking of everyday life, to be thinking of the things that are stretched out in front of you, that are big, that are intimidating, that are perhaps overwhelming. With that, if you would stand for our scripture reading. It's from Genesis 18, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 15. Lorraine. Actually, Lorraine will be reading. Chapter 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he heard from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now what you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seas of finest flour and knead it to bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. 
You can be seated. So I'm going to jump right into the story. When Abraham was 75 years old, which is something just to wrap your head around, 75 years old, God said to him, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 75 years old. Uproot, leave, and go where I show you. <clears throat> so God promises Abraham, that's in Genesis 12, that he's going to be the father of millions of people. A whole nation is going to come from Abraham, but first he needs a son, and he doesn't have any. He doesn't have any children. He's 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, is 65, and God has promised to make a nation through them. Years pass, still no son, <clears throat> and Abraham is understandably concerned because he's not getting <clears throat> thanks. He's not getting any younger, neither is Sarah. So he has another conversation with God. This one is more of a lament. He says, "O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir." God responded by saying, "Look up at the heavens and count the stars if indeed you can count them." so shall your offspring be. More time passes. Still no child. <clears throat> Abraham is now 86. Sarah is 76. So it's been 11 long years of waiting. Again, something to just camp on. 11 years of waiting. 11 years ago, a promise was given. <clears throat> and all through those years, waiting, hoping, looking. <clears throat> and I would imagine that at this point, Abraham, at least now and then, looks at his aging wife and says, I don't think this is going to happen, or at least thinks that. And Sarah looks at her aging husband and thinks, I know this isn't going to happen. <clears throat> and so, like we often do, because we're people, Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands. They try to manufacture a solution. They try to help God out. And so Abraham sleeps with Sarah's servant. Her name was Hagar. She becomes pregnant. Now, they sort of have a son, <clears throat> but this was not at all God's plan. More time passes. Abraham is now 99. Sarah is now 89. 24 years since the promise was first made. 24 years since God said, you're going to be the father of a great nation. <clears throat> and then God comes, and this is the passage we read. God comes and visits Abraham and Sarah. And these three visitors that are in chapter 18 most uh, scholars believe they represent the Holy Spirit, that they came as these three visitors, but in fact it was God coming to them. And God says to them, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Well, she's up there in age, he's up there in age, she happens to be around the corner hearing all this, and the Bible says, <clears throat> puts it bluntly, Abraham and Sarah were old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So then it says, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? And then God poses today's question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Finally, after a quarter of a century of waiting, <clears throat> the promise is fulfilled. Genesis 21 describes it. The Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. 
Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Incidentally, they name him Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. So as we finish this series, today's question is the one that God asked Sarah after she had laughed at this crazy notion of having her first child in her advanced years. God asked her this question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? One of the beautiful things about this question is I don't have to say much. It doesn't appear that I'm going to be able to anyway, but I don't have to say much because this question brings you right into the situations of your life where you need to be reminded of this. You don't need me to explain this. I don't even need to go through this. Is anything too difficult for God? There are times in your life, there are times in my life, perhaps right now, where we're standing squarely facing stuff, and we just wonder, is this too big? I can't handle it. It's overwhelming. And this is a great question for us as we think about the difficulties and as we think about the challenges we might be facing. And it's a great question for us to think about as we reflect upon the world we live in that is increasingly chaotic. It's increasingly fragile. As you look around the world, it just seems like, feels like it's increasingly out of control. And that question echoes, is anything too difficult for the Lord? So it seems to me this question prompts four responses. And the first response is trust in God. And this is Abraham and Sarah's legacy, if you will. They were promised a son, but it took a quarter of a century for the promise to be realized. Think about that. They were given a specific promise. You're going to be the father and the mother of a great nation. You're going to have a child. I know you've never had one, but you're going to have a child. A very specific, detailed, real-life promise that God gave to Abraham and Sarah, and they waited 25 years for it to happen. And as they waited, I'm sure they wondered, is it ever going to happen? I'm sure they wondered at times, maybe she's pregnant. I'm sure Sarah felt phantom movement within her, thinking, oh, there it is, only to be disappointed yet again. Waiting is hard. Uncertainty is hard. Whether we're waiting for a pregnancy confirmation, the results of a blood test, waiting for some conflict to resolve, waiting for some path to open up to give us some sense of which way to go, waiting for healing of past pain, waiting for healing of present pain, waiting is hard. Waiting is a difficult thing for us to do. Our minds get fixed on the situation, and it's hard to wait. We pray, we seek God, we ask God to intervene, we want him to intervene right now, we want this thing resolved, the tension relieved, and sometimes it doesn't happen. For much of those 25 years, Abraham and Sarah held on to the promise, and they trusted God. The Bible says this in more than one place. They, they spent those 25 years clinging to God's promise. But at other times, they took matters into their own hands. They tried to help God do his job. They were human just like we were. But the Apostle Paul in Romans 4 kind of gives a, a picture of Abraham and Sarah and their faith their legacy of faith. He says in Romans 4, against all hope Abraham believed and so became the father of many nations. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. 
Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And that last phrase is is crucial for us. They were fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. He had said he was going to do this, and they had confidence that he would. And one of the things that leaps off the pages of the Bible is the way some, not all, but some of the ordinary people we read about in the Bible did their everyday lives with God, oriented toward God. Their minds were set, we might say, on the things above. The situations of their lives were understood in the larger framework of God's presence, God's power, God's companionship, God's grace, right now, right there, in the moment, with them. And it made all the difference. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Such an important question because it opens the way for us to begin to realize what is really hard for those of us who live in relative abundance to ever realize, and it's this. We have absolutely zero control over some things in this life. And other people are one of the most uncontrollable things of this life. There are just some things we simply cannot control, no matter how hard we try. Our health, our children, our spouse, the future... This is not fun to think about, but every last one of us lives with a certain degree of uncertainty, whether we realize it or not. And this is where the rubber kind of hits the road for the follower of Jesus. Nothing is too difficult for God. So in every situation, we can trust in God. Trust that he's able. Trust that he always does what is good and right and best. Trust that our lives are in his hands. Trust that he will never leave us. Trust that he will never forsake us. And I realize, I realized when I put this together, and I realize in saying it, how religious and maybe even empty these words seem. I mean, Sarah and Abraham trusted God for a specific promise he said was going to happen. And eventually, year 25 came, and it happened. But so often, we are promised things like God's goodness, God's presence, God's companionship, but the specific things are not as clear. We're trusting God, even though he has not made a specific promise about how a particular situation is ultimately going to work itself out. And I just want to say this as loud as I can. It's hard to do this. It's hard to live like this. I suppose a case could be made. It's harder not to trust God. But for those of us who have been in a period of waiting, it is hard because year 25 doesn't always come to us. And it's just hype to offer the idea that nothing is too difficult for God without acknowledging as well that it does not always make things turn out the way we want them to turn out. And so, again, the rubber hits the road with this trusting God business because as his followers, the knowledge, and I don't mean head knowledge, but the experience that we've had, that nothing is too hard for God, compels our decision to trust him because he's good, because he's great, because he's able, and because our lives are in his hands. Those are the promises that form the basis of our trust in him. He's good. He's great. He's powerful. And our lives are in his hands. Those are the promises we can say, those are true all the time. And on the basis of that, we lean in and trust him. And one of the overarching messages of the Bible is that we can trust God in every situation with everything. We can trust him in the gut-wrenching. 
in the uncertain situations of life. We can trust him with the messy state of world affairs. We can trust him with our health problems. So trusting God really is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It's the essence of what it means to live as a Christian. What is a Christian? Someone who is learning how to trust God in every situation with everything. Not trusting there is a God, but trusting in him. Nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing is beyond him. Nothing is greater than him. Nothing baffles him. Nothing surprises him. The story of the Bible is the story of men and women like you and me slowly stumbling their way to discovering that God can be trusted. And they're learning to trust him even when things don't make sense or resolve as desired. Second thing that this question compels is that we cling to hope. Is anything too difficult for the Lord inspires a way to navigate the challenges, the struggles, the disappointments of life with hope God can come through. What does that mean? We hope and we have reason to hope that transformation can happen, that God through his spirit can do something within us and change us. We have hope that healing can occur, physical healing, emotional healing, relational healing, and maybe one of the big ones for us is to think about our past and claim God has the power to heal what has happened in our past. You know this as well as I do, that hope is a bit of an endangered species in today's world. But God's greatness, God's goodness, and his ongoing companionship inspires hope. When we take the time to read the letters of the Apostle Paul in big chunks, not a verse at a time or even a paragraph at a time, but when we read the whole of his letters and just kind of absorb who this guy was, we find a man who had an experiential knowledge of God that profoundly reframed his everyday reality. The risen Christ changed everything in everyday life for the Apostle Paul. And part of the burden that he felt is to try to communicate to people who were Christ's lovers and Christ's followers that the reality of who Jesus was and the power of the Spirit at work right there actually, literally reframed everything in everyday life. God was present and active in everyday life. And his power was available, so there was always a reason to hope. Not that Paul or the others in the Bible weren't frail or at times shaken. They were fully human, just like we are. Abraham and Sarah believed God's promise and had hope, but some days it was harder than others to cling to hope. But the Bible really reverberates with the sensibility of hope or the, the rationality of hope, the realism of hope, because nothing is too difficult for God. Again, Romans 15, 13, we sent the Young people out with this earlier. May that Paul is praying this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not just a fancy way for him to conclude a letter he was writing. Paul is offering a vision of reality accessible to anyone who put their trust in Jesus Christ. He calls God the God of hope. So the living God of the universe is the author of hope, and his powerful spirit can and will cultivate hope in us. We can actually overflow with hope. We can have more than enough hope. We can have a perspective about life shaped and framed by hope, regardless of the circumstances we might be facing. 
And this all points to a new way of living sustained by the presence of God and the God of hope. <clears throat> In Ephesians chapter 118, Paul similarly prays this for the Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened <clears throat> in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Just step back and think about this guy, Paul, and think about congregations just like ours, gatherings of people facing all kinds of stuff. And Paul knows something has happened in the person of Christ and in the giving of the spirit. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you know the hope to which he has called you. It's almost as though what he's saying is, I pray that your eyes will be open to see the new reality you now live in so that you experience the hope to which he's called you, regardless of what you're facing. Hope is always elusive for human beings because there's so much evidence to suggest it is unwarranted. And we are bombarded with evidence that says there's no reason to hope. Hope is a dying breed. Hope is an endangered species. I don't know where you are with this, but I find it increasingly difficult to cling to hope these days. For one, I often hear the same old thoughts bombarding my mind. I see the same old reactions in certain situations, and it makes me wonder if I ever will change or if I will just go on talking about transformation. But for two, another reason why hope is more elusive to me these days is because the world seems so off the rails. Our house backs up to a busy street, and there's a wall between the street and our backyard. The other day, there was screaming coming from the other side of the wall. So get this picture. I looked over the wall, and two grown men, allegedly grown men, were standing outside of their cars as they sat at a spotlight, one car in front, one behind. They got out of their cars, and they were standing face-to-face, and they were screaming at each other, and they were threatening each other. One guy shouted, I'm going to hit you. Remember, these are two allegedly adult men living in an allegedly advanced society. So you see that kind of stuff, and there's the temptation to kind of lose hope. Are we so far off the rails? To give up and sort of settle. But here's the thing, and I know this will probably push some buttons. It pushes buttons in me, quite frankly, but I think it's true. If two people are willing to humble themselves before God and each other, and they're willing to surrender themselves to God and to each other, there's absolutely nothing in that relationship that is too difficult for God to handle. If two people are willing... Big condition to humble themselves before God and each other and surrender themselves to God and each other. There's nothing in the relationship God can't handle. So in light of the goodness of God, in light of his greatness and companionship, clinging to hope regardless of the circumstances is logical and it makes sense. And again, I want to acknowledge the elephant in the room. Things don't always work out. That thing in the video I don't have the exact words, but how do you know something bad's not going to happen? And Dory says, I don't, but it's time to let go. Relationships don't always survive. Bodies are not always healed. Dreams are not always realized. Longings are not always fulfilled. And yet God's question looms, is anything too difficult for the Lord? So we hope for the situations of this life to resolve and work out. We pray for them to resolve and work out. We hope for transformation. We hope for our desires to be fulfilled. We hope our prayers are answered. We hope for healing. 
But we always remember in, in light of this that God is bigger than these things. Our hope is in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Nothing is too difficult for him, and everything is under his watchful eye and in his care. Third thing that is inspired by this question is take some risks. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? One of the most notable things in the Bible is God's habit of doing the exact opposite of what we would do if we were God. His decisions and strategic plans rarely align with what we would do if we had his job. Think about it. He's going to build a nation from the ground up. So he chooses a 75-year-old man who's seen better days and a 65-year-old woman who can't have children. And this is how he's going to build a nation from the ground up. I assure you, I would not have done it that way. Eventually, this nation wants a king, and the people do what people do. They select the tallest, the strongest, the most handsome, the smartest guy they can find. They appoint him king, and he fails miserably. But God chooses the youngest son of seven, a teenager, the least impressive. He's a shepherd. He's a nobody. And God says, that's my guy. And he turns out to be Israel's greatest king. God decides to come to earth to show people more accurately who he is and what he's all about. So he chooses, let's see, I know, an obscure teenage virgin through whom he enters the world as a baby. He's God in the flesh, but 90% of his life is ordinary and unseen and unknown. We know a thing about it. For 90% of his time on the planet, no one knows who he is or what he's doing here. And then he suffers at the hands of the people he came to redeem. And then he dies a criminal's death. And all of that is just upside down from how I would do it. God seems to always do things in ways we would never imagine. Nothing is too difficult for him, but his strategy is always peculiar and it's never predictable. He chooses the peculiar and predictable way so there's no doubt Who did it? And one of God's off-the-wall strategies for making his kingdom known in this world and showing others who he is, one of the strategies that God has employed since the very beginning to make himself known in this world is you and me. We are his strategy. We are how he makes himself known in this world. You are how people at Intel find out who God is. You are how people at the Department of Corrections or at Kaiser or Folsom High School, Folsom Middle School, or whatever college campus you are, or in your neighborhood. You are God's strategy for them to see him and find out what he's about. Now, that is just bizarre because the last thing in the world I would do to help someone know who God is is send me to them for a whole host of reasons. And it seems to me, in light of God's track record of creative and surprising strategies, there should be times in our lives when we take some creative risks for the sake of the kingdom. Nothing is too difficult for God. So it seems there should be times when out-of-the-box visions and ideas and dreams absolutely grip our hearts. And instead of calculating and then saying no, instead of playing it safe and saying no, instead of, well, someone could do this, but certainly not me. Instead of those things, we take a risk, we trust God, we get out of the box, we let the creativity flow, and we go for it. Is anything too difficult for God? It's not a question to philosophically think about. 
or theologically ponder. It's a question that reminds us that God is powerful and he has us on this planet not to eat and drink and be merry and then retire. He has us on this planet to serve him and make him known. And sometimes, I think more times than we may realize, that means we take a risk and we do something in his name and for his glory. Let me put it this way. There is stuff cooking in many of you. You may have never shared it with anybody. It's in your heart. It's in your head. It's out of the box. It's nuts. But God has put it there. And he's put it there for the sake of the kingdom. And you're fighting all these thoughts. Well, someone else should do it. I don't have time to do it. I wouldn't be good at doing it even if I did it. And I just want to suggest to you that sometimes those crazy out-of-the-box things are the ways in which God stirs up his kingdom and moves his kingdom forward. So Playmakers has been part of Oak Hills for a long time. Many of you know uh, Greg Rosner and his team of people. Uh, We've done many things with Playmakers. They've done many things in this realm of taking risks, stepping out, pushing beyond the, the borders and watching what God does. And so they had a recent event in Buffalo. We want to show you a clip that kind of illustrates this. The Buffalo Bills hitting the field for the first time in 2019 for a good cause. We're trying to leave a really good footprint out here in Buffalo. How big of a Bills fan are you? Um, super. One to ten. One hundred. To Bills defensive tackle Harrison Phillips, it's about paying it forward. Today's Playmakers event gave 125 at risk and special needs youth the chance to get active. I can't even imagine what it's like for these kids. They came into this facility with 50 high school players making a tunnel for them, getting a standing ovation. It's just got to be big for them. Activities range from field goal kicking to offensive drills, although it was having eight roster bills at the event that made these athletes light up. That's Philip Harrison. This is the, um, I think, 75 for Buffalo. I don't know his name, but I know his number. It's 75. The Shore Brothers, they stole some of the show. How old are you guys? Twelve. Twelve. Identical twins, I'm guessing? Yes. Yes. They came as a package, even when running together in a Dizzy Bat relay race. (laughs) Is this your first time playing here at the Bills Camp? Yes. Yes. Chucking up seven fingers mid-stride to shout out Channel 7. The city of Buffalo is doing a heck of a job raising our youth, knowing that they're out here on their off days paying it forward. And so just appreciation is probably what I'll leave today with. In Orchard Park. Great. You guys are in high school in two years? Yeah. Yeah, my mom's going to cry. Sean Robson, 7 Eyewitness News. That's just out there. What's God up to? Step into it and see what happens. So the last thing that I think this question prompts is for us to celebrate the good. I love this scene when her son Isaac finally came, when the son was finally born. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I'd borne him a son in his old age? Just a beautiful picture there. Sarah, at the age of 89, rocking back and forth as parents do, holding this little baby in her arms, never imagining she was ever going to do that, laughing about it, naming him laughter, gathering with her friends, and laughing and celebrating and just simply looking at one another in awe of who God is and what God has done. God has come through. And I love this verse I just read because it's Sarah reveling in his goodness. 
Nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing is impossible with him. Life may be crazy. The world may be off the rails. But God is God, and he can handle it. So we can relax because he's got it. I realize life can be painful. It's painful for all of us. We go through tough stuff. Life can hurt. Our plans don't always pan out. I'll say it again. He has it. It's in his care. We can relax. We can rest knowing our eternal God is good. He is great. And history past and history present and history future is under his care. It's in his hands. And it's all headed toward the fulfillment of his purposes. And so in light of his greatness, every now and then, perhaps more often than we do, we need to take the time to revel in his goodness, to laugh, to celebrate the little wonders of life that are all around us, to acknowledge the goodness of God, to turn away from the frantic rush hour in our minds, the chaos between our ears, and simply dwell on God's beauty, dwell on God's goodness, breathe in his grace, Breathe out his gratitude. He's good, he's great, and ultimately, he's got this. So there's a story of a friar who had spent much of his life in a Nebraska monastery, and he set about to reflect on his life. And these are the words he wrote. I'll end with this. He said, if I had my life to live over again, I'd try to make more mistakes next time. I would relax. I would limber up. I would be sillier than I've been this trip. I know a very few things I would take seriously. I would take more trips, I would be crazier, I would climb more mountains, swim more rivers, and watch more sunsets. I would do more walking and looking. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. I would have more actual troubles and fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of those people who lives life protectively and sensibly, hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments, and if I had it to do over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I'd try to have nothing else, just moments, one after another. Instead of living so many years ahead each day, I've been one of those people who never go anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a gargle, a raincoat, aspirin, and a parachute. If I had it to do over again, I would go places, do things, and travel lighter than I have. If I had my life to live over, I would start barefooted earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. I would play hooky more. I wouldn't make such good grades except by accident. I'd ride on more merry-go-rounds. I'd pick more daisies. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the truth of your word. And we pray that we will have your spirit's help to cling to hope, to trust you, to take some risks, and to celebrate the good. We pray that you will open our eyes and be present with us as we live in the situations of our lives and seek to do so with you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thanks for being here today. And as you leave, may the grace and the peace and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thanks for being here.